Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 93. It's titled Capitalism, Complexity, and Cuba. I am back in Idaho after spending a week in Cuba with my son. Absolutely amazing journey. Learned an incredible amount, and what a warm, welcoming people. I want to share some experiences, but also mainly because it illustrates a lot of the economic principles and themes that I've covered in this show over many episodes. First, let me introduce you to somebody I met. His name is Rafael. He is a taxi driver. He works in Trinidad, Cuba. Trinidad is about five hours, six hours from Havana, a couple hundred miles. He's 65 but looks much younger. His taxi is a Fiat. He owns it. It's from the early 60s. Its original motor has been replaced by a Russian Lada engine. Russia, the Lada is is ubiquitous in Cuba. And it cost Rafael, this engine, this replacement engine cost Rafael $10,000, the equivalent of $10,000. The taxi steering wheel is from an old Peugeot. We had hired Rafael to drive us east, the valley east of Trinidad, to, to where there are a lot of old sugar mill plantations. Rafael was really easy to talk to. I, I conversed with him in Spanish about his family, and he was quick to point out about his 21-year-old son who had passed away five years ago in a car accident. And he shared how this, his son's death was really having a negative effect on his wife's mental health. She's very, is very, very bad, is, is how Raphael put it. And the doctor, he says, giving her pills, and they help some. This was his wife's only son. Raphael has two other sons from a previous marriage, but he emphasized again and again how this was her only son. He explains she suffered this great loss and its after effects after going through two episodes of breast cancer. Raphael said, la vida is muy, muy dura. Life is very, very hard. Now, I had only known Raphael for about five minutes, and he said, is it okay if we stop by my house for a minute? And then he proudly showed his garage that is right next to his house. His house in, in, a lot, in Trinidad, a lot of them are built in colonial style, so all the houses are very close to the street. He went in for a minute, and, and in about 30 seconds, he came back with two bananas that he gave to my son and I and his wife came out. So we get out of the car, we met her, and then he invited us inside to see the photographs of his son. They, they put sort of, a, they were just kind of on the wall, just, just kind of a memorial to their son. Now, we hadn't, we didn't, I didn't know Raphael, yet here he was within five 10 minutes inviting us into his house, introducing us to his wife, showing us around, and that he was not the exception in Cuba. The Cuban people are incredibly warm and welcoming. There are many throughout our trip that approached us just to strike up conversations. Some just wanted to talk. Others had things they wanted to show us, such as a local museum or good restaurants. Some asked for donations of money or pencils to help out the children. But everyone did so with charm. The Cubans have got to be the most engaging salespeople I have ever met. 
They are quick to gain your trust. They ask about your life, your home. They share stories of their own country. And for those that have something to sell, they can present their proposal in such a compelling way, it's difficult to say no. When we arrived in Havana the first day, I just didn't know what to expect. I mean, socialism, communism, I expected a police state. And there were no policemen hardly anywhere in Havana. And there were very few military. There was not any evidence of a strong military presence at all. It, It reminded me a lot of just going to Mexico, third world country, with the exception of all the classic American cars that still ride on the road. That first day, a number of people walked up to us. We, we, someone gave us a tour of the, the, a, mus- a music house, a, a Casa de Cultura, which, which had a lot of musicians playing, and just, just, just talked to us. And another gentleman walked up and started talking to us in English and shared about his family, about how his wife had lupus, and, and found out we hadn't eaten yet, and so he had a restaurant he wanted to show us. And then he talked about how there are three ways that Cubans can make money on their own. They, they have permission to run their own business. One is to run a, essentially a, a bed and breakfast, what's known as a casa particular, or they, they can run a private restaurant, a paladar, or, according to this gentleman, twice a month, the pensioners, the retirees, are given a discount on a box of Cuban cigars, which they can sell as part of a cooperative. And when he mentioned, he just sort of mentioned this in passing as we were walking and showing us the restaurant. This was the second time I had heard this. Somebody early in the day had said the same thing. I didn't really want cigars, but I just, I mentioned, well, where's this place at? Because I kind of had in my mind a group of pensioners Retirees just sitting around selling their guitar, their, their cigars. I thought, I'd like to see that. And, and so I said, over oh, here, I'll, I'll go show you. Well, he led us into a private home, and there were no pensioners there. It was a young couple, and there were these boxes of Cohiba cigars. They had a specia, a specia, I think they're called a Speciales, and, and, and there were other ones. And he... And he he would just weave these stories back and forth. And in my mind, I had the idea that it was, they were $25 a box. And he gave the price, and they were $250 for a box of 25 Cohiba cigars. And I, 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 wanted, I didn't want them. They were way, way too much money. And, but I felt sort of stuck because we were in this home, and it was just – it was our first day. We were sleep-deprived. And, and this gentleman, he huddles us together and speaks to us in English. He said, hey, he, I know you don't smoke and you want these for your uncle. We can negotiate a much better price. Let's offer him $150. And I'm like, oh, my. And the, sh- long story short, we walked out with a $150 box of, the, of cigars. Then the restaurant we went to ended up being way pricier than I expect. Expected that ended up costing us $65 with a taxi ride into Cuba, another equivalent of $30, and the museum tour that somebody talked us into, and the donation for the children, and the CD we bought. We, after our first day, had spent a third of the money we brought into Cuba. 
And Cuba is a cash society. If you're an American citizen, because of the embargo, you cannot go to an ATM to go find money, to, get, to take money out. You, whatever you bring in, that's, that's what has to last for the entire trip. And so after that, we were much more careful because individuals st- still came up and talked to us. And, but we were careful never to go into a restaurant without looking at the menu first. Don't ever take a taxi ride without negotiating the price first. And, and do it, obviously, not, not hammering a hard bargain, but just so everybody is clear. We got on one bicycle taxi, and we thought we negotiated a price of, of $5. And when we got off, he wanted 10 because it was $5 or 5 pesos each. There is a billboard near the Plaza de la... Revolution in Havana that has a picture of a noose around a relief map of Cuba. And the wording on the billboard is the embargo, the biggest genocide in history. Now, in Cuba, there are no, the the only billboards around, the only signs around are generally for billboards supporting the revolution or, or pictures of Hugo Chavez or Cuba's greatest friend. Now, there's no doubt the U.S. trade embargo has made life very difficult for the average Cuban. Most of the classic American cars that cruise the streets of Havana are no longer propelled by American engines due to a lack of parts because of the embargo. We rode in a 1941 Buick that was outfitted with a six-cylinder Argentinian diesel motor. Yet in the last few years, the Cuban government has admitted that most of the country's economic problems are homegrown and not due to the trade embargo. The government acknowledges its state-run businesses are inefficient, there is too much red tape, and many of its rules are archaic and make absolutely no sense. Why are there so many classic American European cars in Cuba? Because until 2011, it was illegal for Cubans to buy and sell cars made before 1959 without special government permission. Cubans still aren't allowed to buy new cars. In 2011, Cubans were allowed to buy and sell their houses for the first time. A taxi driver we met in Miami laughed about how his aunt in Havana has just sold her house and was walking around with $27,000 in cash. More money than she could ever dream she would have. Of course, there was nothing she could buy with her house proceeds because in Cuba, there is not hardly anything for sale. You go around Havana and around, there are not many stores at all. There's some food stores, but if you want to go lamp shopping or furniture shopping, there there are no furniture stores that we saw. On our last night in Havana, we stayed in the house of Carlos and Jeanette. They, throughout the trip, we booked Casa Particulares using Airbnb. You can use Airbnb, at least as an American citizen, you can use Airbnb to book housing in Cuba. So they were renting out their house. They've done so for the past two years. And they mentioned that Carlos, our host, that he had money now that he had his business, but there wasn't anything he could buy with it. Unless you go to you can get somebody to arrange and bring you something back from another country. He said he couldn't even get a lamp, a good lamp. The Cuban economy has some serious, serious challenges. In the early 90s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Cuba found itself unable to import many of the things it needs because it got so much from the Soviet Union in terms of oil. 
And they went through a very, very difficult period where there wasn't enough food. There is not enough food in Cuba unless it imports large amounts of it. In order to import food and other things, you need hard currency to be able to do that. So that's when, in, in 1994, that's when tourism began, and Cuba opened up its border to let in tourists. That's when citizens could open up their homes and start renting out rooms in their homes. And, and without Venezuela coming along with their cheap oil, Cuba would have continued to suffer greatly. But they recognize the Cuban government, Raul Castro, as president, recognizes the, the significant challenges faced in the economy. In 2010, at the National Assembly, here's what Castro said, quote, the construction of a new society from an economic point of view is, in my modest opinion, also a journey into the unknown, the undiscovered. We do not intend to copy from anyone again. That brought enough problems to us because, in addition to that, many times we also copied badly. However, we shall not ignore others' experiences and will learn from them even from the positive experience is of capitalists. Cuba recognizes their socialist socialism as they had been living it isn't working. It's not working. The salaries are too low. The thing that the Cubans value most is the free health care and the free education and just the safety. I have never been in a country that, that felt so safe. And, and those are foundations. But even the health care and the education is starting to suffer because what happened in the 90s when they introduced They started taking dollars in the convertible peso. There are essentially two currencies in Cuba. There's the moneda nacional, the national currency, and there's the the convertible currency. And you essentially have two economies. You have this economy where the prices are much higher. You go to a store that sells goods um, that takes convertibles or kooks, and the markup's about 240% higher than if you went to a store that only took moneda nacional. Now, what's going to happen when you have a store that can sell something that, hot, that much more pricey than the, the, the local store? Well, goods start to flow to the, the more expensive store because the profit margins are so higher. And you have a situation in Cuba where there's, there is not enough production particularly of food, and so you have capacity constraints. And so you can't raise everyone's salary. The average monthly salary in Cuba is about $25. Well, if you raise everyone's salary and there isn't sufficient capacity, not producing enough food and goods, then you have a significant inflation problem. And Cuba has a serious inflation problem. When you look at the price of goods, let me pull it up. The cost of a family's basic of basic goods rose 15% in both 2012 and 2013 and 28% in 2014. This is according to the Union of Young Communists newspaper. And I got this article from uh, the Daily Mail article. It was written by a, a gentleman whose book I just read, Mark Frank. F-R-A-N-K. And after I got back from Cuba, because I didn't do a whole lot of reading on Cuba before, before I went, but after I got back, I, I, I just 
needed to understand what in the heck was going on. And the best book I read is called Cuban Revelations Behind the Seeds in Havana. It's by Mark Frank. If you remember my Insider's Guide, you would have gotten a link to that book. If you're not a member of my Insider's Guide, you can sign up by going to moneyfortherestofus.net or you can text the word INSIDER, I-N-S-I-D-E-R, to the number 44222. You'll get a text back, you can get the email, and you'll be all signed up. But I read that book, and it really helped me understand the challenges Cuba is facing because they don't have, they have limited capacity. They're having to to import large amount of food. And to do that, you need currency. And so the, the main export that Cuba has is tourism. It's individuals coming over. There are several million visitors that come to Cuba every year. And with the U.S. opening up the, the ability to travel more easily, when I went, I had filled out an affidavit saying I was a journalist and I could go, but nobody asked for my papers saying why I could be there other than my passport. And Cuba potentially could have 10 million visitors coming from the U.S., and they do not have the infrastructure to support that. There are so many tourists in, in this town, Trinidad, it, it's overrun with tourists. In fact, the Cuban government has said anyone, anybody can have rent out their house now. You used to, have to need a special permit, but now anyone can do it. Anyone can to have a restaurant because there aren't any hotels. And we saw that the lack of capacity, there is insufficient public transportation. There's not enough taxis. There's not enough buses. The airport only has one functioning gas truck to fill up the planes. It resulted in about a two-and-a-half-hour delay as we waited because we couldn't get gas onto the airplane. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. So what is Cuba trying to do to solve this problem? They recognize the, in, the inefficiency of their large... Uh, 30, the vast majority of people work for the state. 70% of Cubans work for the state or one of the 3,700 state businesses that, that run everything. 
And in the National Congress, or the, it was a basically a, the Cuban or the Communist National Assembly, it was a Sixth Communist Party Congress, that's the official name, where they're going to do their five-year plan. It was April 2011. And, and up to this, Raul is, is, is surveying people. They're trying to figure out what it is that is bugging people and, and what can they do. It's really, really hard to run a top-down economy. It, the, the level of complexity is so great. And invariably, it leads to inefficiency. So here's the three things that they were going to do coming out of April 2011 over the next five years. The state was to get out of administering the economy And so instead of trying to administer and plan everything, the state was going to regulate it through taxes and other financial tools. There would be an emphasis on decentralization of economic decisions to the provinces and municipalities. Push it out to the local level so that decision could be made at the local level. And there was going to be the support of small private businesses and farms, cooperatives, and other forms of non-state activity. The idea was there's so much land that just lays fallow in Cuba to lease it out to the Cubans so that they can grow things, so that they have an incentive. And talking to Rafael, the taxi driver, I just I talked a little bit. I asked him about the, re- the revolution, and he was seven at the time. He says, yeah, I don't remember much of it, and I don't really care about politics. I just want the freedom to t- earn money to take care of my family and for my grandkids, his, his Seven-year-old grandson apparently is really, really good at, at karate. He calls him a little Bruce Lee. Well, I asked Raphael about sort of where were people working, and he said he, he just mentioned that there's a big difference between the private farms or the cooperatives because the, the individuals have an incentive and their pay varies based on the success of the crops, whereas with the state-run farms, the pay is the same no matter what, and, and there's, there's just not the incentive there. And so the idea is to do to, to lay off hundreds of thousands of people, and those things are starting, and and for people to move to the private economy, and and there's risk to that. In this book by Mark Frank, there's a quote by Maria who worked in a restaurant for 18 years. Here's what she said: Being laid off was more of a psychological shock than an economic one because I wasn't paid much. It hurts your self-esteem. You feel you did something wrong, even if you work for many years without any problems. And you know it isn't your fault. It isn't easy. The future is bleak and more uncertain, but I have my health to face it. And with health, you can deal with anything. We Cubans are a very optimistic people. So Maria, she got a Spanish passport, flew to Miami to work with relatives for a few months, and then she turned that money into goods and brought them back to sell. And that, that's where a lot of the goods are coming into, despite the trade embargo, when we were lined up at the airport in Miami, we had our little roller on roller bags. Everybody else had these huge suitcases and boxes all shrink wrapped and more than likely carrying goods to sell back in Cuba. Now, in the quote from Maria, she said, the future is uncertain. Ro Castro says, as they change the economy, it's a journey into the unknown. You cannot have a functioning economy without a level of uncertainty. Back in early 2000s, I read a book by Edgar Peters called Complexity, 
risk in financial markets. And he was talking about complexity theory. And he said complex systems, which is what a, any economy is, a socialist economy, a capitalist economy, it's a complex systems. Complex systems have local uncertainty and global certainty. You have some level of global certainty. You have property rights. You have safety in terms of the defense by the nation. You, you hope, Hopefully you have the rule of law. But you have to have local uncertainty, variability. Complex systems have the ability to reach the same goal through multiple means. That means you, it's not planned from the top. You have all these individual agents in a country acting in their best interest, trying to solve problems, trying, in the case of Cuba, to make ends meet. If you have a job with the government and you earn $25 and the food prices are skyrocketing at 15% a year, there is not enough money to buy food. You have to find ways to earn money. Peters goes on to say, reducing the uncertainty of complex systems, i.e. making them more predictable, makes them less resilient to shocks and makes them less creative. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the planned economy of Cuba, huge shock. The people nearly starved, or many did, without Venezuela coming in and the changes that were made. Peters again, creative adaptive behavior increases with lower amounts of structure and higher amounts of uncertainty. The more uncertainty you have, the more creative people need to become and do become. Creativity means doing something outside the range of existing practices, trying new things, experimenting. It is the process of merging previously unrelated items into a new whole, integration, seeing relationships between unrelated items. That's what creative is, just figuring it out. Sort of as Karl Popper says, as a piecemeal engineer, you do little by little and you try things out. You don't make wholesale changes all at once because of unattended consequences. And that's what Cuba is trying to do. They're making, because you've had a, a people that have been under a very strict government system with much of their needs provided by the state for over 50 years, Carlos, who we stayed with, gave an example. If you're a blind man at a dining room table and you, you, your plate's always in the same spot, your napkin and, and your cup, and suddenly you show up and it's all moved around, it can be very, very hard on people, particularly the older people Carlos mentioned. The younger people can adapt more easily, but the older people. And so Cuba is gradually making the changes. Finally, Peter says, innovative geniuses persist in the creative process for long periods of time, exploring many different combinations of what is known. Cuba is undergoing a grand experiment. They, their, their economy is broken. One of the other primary drivers is the, fat, the foreign debt that Cuba owes to Russia, to Brazil, to China. Debt that they incurred in the only way... With foreign debt, the only way to pay it is with hard currency. You have to have, you have to run essentially a trade surplus, export more than you import, and and that that is what is driving. When it comes down to it, it's debt that's driving Cuba to change, and it's inflation, the lack of capacity because the incentives weren't there for the people 
to, to be more creative, to embrace the uncertainty, and to lead the economy into a much more productive phase. Who knows how it's going to turn out? Hopefully, it will turn out well because the Cuban people deserve it. They, they, are, they are inherently entrepreneurial. I saw it. And they want the freedom to do it. And th- there are still stupid rules that need to be fixed. The fact that you can't have internet in your home. You go to a, a public square in, in Trinidad, the public park, everybody's sitting around, the tourists and the Cubans getting Wi-Fi. The shift from socialism to capitalism requires greater uncertainty, which means people have to be allowed to fail and will fail, and the Cuban government is willing to let their state businesses fail. The question is, for all economies, is what do you do to help those that fail? What type of social safety net is available? And that, that is an ongoing discussion through, throughout all governments that set that social safety net at, at different levels. So that was Cuba. We'll see how it turns out. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. You can also get them, as I mentioned, through my insider's guide. Just text the word INSIDER to 44222. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I answer two primary questions. What's going on in terms of the economy, in terms of markets, so that members aren't investing blindly? January was was a horrific month for the stock market and other risk assets. We formally look on a monthly basis. We look at economic trends. We look at valuations. We look at the level of fear and greed and momentum. We put them all together. We rate it red for bad, green for good, yellow for neutral, and decide, is there regime change? Have things deteriorated enough that we should be reducing risk in our investment portfolio? So that's question number one. What's going on? Question number two is, how should I invest? What can I earn investing over the next 10 years in terms of my overall asset allocation? What kind of premium can I get investing using smart beta, such as value, momentum? These are things we focus on the hub as I continue to build it out to answer those questions to help you achieve your long-term investing and retirement goals. You can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. The Hub is not only for U.S. citizens. It's a global service. I have There are members in Europe. There are members in Australia. There are members in Canada. It is not U.S.-centric. We focus on all regions around the globe. And again, at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money investing in the economy. Have a great week.